the first place we will go today uh, is we need to do first things first today, and that is discuss uh, what this day is about. We don't want to lose any meaning here. Uh, I can encapsulate it pretty quickly, I think, but the plan of God <clears throat> is that everyone who has ever lived will have an opportunity at salvation. The churches try to run around the earth getting everybody to accept Jesus because they're afraid that if they don't accept his name during their lifetime on this earth, they're going to go to hell. <clears throat> and they don't understand the scriptures whatsoever and what God is going to do and how he's going to do it. But essentially, the Holy Days uh, picture the plan of God from start to finish. Is why they're there. And we rehearse them every year so that we do not forget what he is doing and what he is doing for everyone, not just us. But the Passover is, of course, uh, a pivotal point, the first holy time of the year in which Christ on the first day did everything necessary to remove sin so that we do not have to die forever. Uh, it is appointed to all men once to die, but after that, the resurrection. So we may die physically, but we have opportunity to live longer if we can convince God, when our chance comes, that we should live forever in his kingdom and that we will be peaceful and loving and kind and cooperative and helpful. Uh, the fruit of his spirit has to pervade the universe. He's had it with the spirit of Satan. He's had it with the spirit of man and the carnality of man. And he does not want that to exist throughout eternity. So if there is selfishness and rebellion and putting of the self first, which is idolatry, uh, those people cannot be throughout eternity because that would create conditions in the universe just like we have them here. Can I see the hands of those of you who would like to live forever and ever and ever under our current conditions? <laughs> Not many takers on that one, I don't think. It's pretty, pretty pitiful down here. So he doesn't want any more of this. So his plan is to ensure that everyone has a chance to be in his kingdom and live in peace forever who has ever lived. Now, the Passover is the beginning with what Christ did to die for our sins, so we don't have to die for them. Then he has six more days, the days of man, uh, there that we do our part in putting sin out of our lives so that further penalty is not incurred. Pentecost comes along, picturing the time of the engagement of Christ to his bride, the giving of his Holy Spirit to her, for without his Spirit... In his mind, in his attitude, we couldn't be his bride. So, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost for a very important reason then. And the engagement process. Then we have to go through the long, hot summer uh, of growth, of overcoming, of waiting for him. Fruit of the Spirit is patience, one of them. And we have to endure and be patient until the time comes, either of his return or our death, whichever comes first, and ultimately the resurrection. 
Feast of Trumpets pictures the return of Christ and that resurrection. And with it comes the salvation of the first 144,000 apart from Christ. He's the first of the first fruits, qualified here on earth to go back and be the Son of God forevermore. And he puts Satan down in their battle. So he is qualified to come rule the earth. Now we are in the process during this long hot summer of preparing ourselves to rule with him, making the bride ready. Then when he comes on trumpets in the year that he comes, <clears throat> the 144,000 will be resurrected and become the bride of Christ, go to the Father's throne, be married, have a year-long honeymoon, and come back with him to finish conquering the earth and to set up the kingdom of God. So he'll have 144,000 helpmeets to rule the earth. And those who have survived the Holocaust here at the end and the seven last plagues will be the first ones to be offered salvation other than the 144,000 people who are still physically alive. And it will be, according to Daniel, about 100 million out of 7.5 billion that we have today. A lot of people, but a very small number by comparison, less than 90% by far, or less than 10% by far, is what I meant. So, during the millennium, they will learn God's ways, the earth will be rebuilt and restored and made beautiful again from the pollution that we have created on it, and that completes 7,000 years, 6,000 years of man and Satan, 1,000 years of Christ's rule in peace, and everyone there has an opportunity at salvation. Now you have a category of people then who have never had that opportunity. There are, by estimates, maybe 60 billion people that have lived on the face of the earth. No one knows for sure, but there have been a lot of people since Adam. And most of them died not having known God or Christ. And here's something you can't really understand unless you understand God's holy days and their meaning. You have that category of people who lived and died on the earth. Some of them only lived for minutes or hours. Some of them lived over 900 years back in Adam's day. Some of them never drew the breath of life, either miscarried or aborted. Millions of those who would have been human beings, and I think even in the womb, were human beings, even though they had not been born. The Protestants don't know what to do with these people. I guess they're going to hell since they didn't accept Jesus. Well, they never had a chance to. Most people who ever lived on the face of the earth have never known about the living God. Most Asians, uh, for instance don't know about God. They know about reincarnation and nirvana. They think they just keep being recreated, recreated, recreated as humans over and over. Well, not always as humans. Sometimes they come back as lizards or cows. Uh, that's why you can't kill a cow, because it could be your great uncle wearing a muumuu. Anyway, uh, you have all these people who've never known God. Is God so unfair and so unmerciful and unkind that He's just going to destroy them or never resurrect them? 
No, he's tacked onto his holy day plan of 7,000 years an extra time. Talks about the Feast of Tabernacles being seven days in, in Leviticus or Deuteronomy. Then it talks about a last great day being added. That's here in John 7:37, which was just sung to us. In the last day, the eighth, or that great day of the feast, and it is a great day because it represents most people who have ever lived on the earth. Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Now, that is not a conflict with John 6:44, which I've been quoting. It's just back a page. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So he's talking about now, and those that God is calling now, they'll die but come up at the Peace of Trumpets, or the return of Christ. And he may in a larger sense even be referring to this late, last great day of the feast. Because before, it's been a limited calling. That's what John 6.44 is saying. Not just anybody out there can come to God. They have to be called. Now, what does Christ say here in contrast to that? If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. So he's not just limiting those whom God might call now, or has in the past, but to anyone on earth that wants him can find him. He opens the door to salvation for everyone. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit, which they that believe of him should receive. For it was not yet given. It wouldn't be given until Passover, I mean until Pentecost. So, he's opening the door of salvation to anyone here. Let's go back to Revelation 20 for a moment, where he describes different resurrections. And most religionists uh, do not understand this at all. Well, I'm kind of slow here. I'll get there. Now, when Christ returns, it says he'll lay hold on that old serpent, verse 2, which is the devil and Satan, and bind him a thousand years. So he's been here now for nearly 6,000, ruling the earth, prince of the power of the air. Then he is bound for a thousand years so that he cannot uh, influence anyone and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. So he's going to have one more short opportunity after the thousand-year reign of Christ. And then I saw thrones, and judgment was given to them. Uh, people who were martyred or beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark on their foreheads, are in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again till a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. 
Now, we know from Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 that this description applies only to 144,000 total. That's the first resurrection who come up when Christ returns, or who are changed, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, at that time, who are still alive. The rest of the dead live not again till a thousand years were finished. So, you have those who are resurrected or changed when Christ returns. Then you have those who are still physically alive at the end of the seven last plagues. Not very many, a hundred million maybe, who will go into the millennium and be under Christ's rule for a thousand years while Satan is bound. But when only those 144,000 are resurrected, it says the rest of the dead didn't rise. People think that there's a, when Christ comes back, everybody's resurrected and he starts separating sheep and goats. No, that's not what it is. It makes it very clear here that... Only certain ones come up, and the rest of the dead don't live until later. The rest of the living that are still alive continue to live on into the millennium. And they have their chance at salvation then. So he's calling some now to have our chance, and hopefully be part of the bride of Christ to rule others for a thousand years. Those who alive and remain will have their chance then. Then you have that... 60 billion or whatever, babies, unborn babies, old people that lived and never knew about God or never really understood who he was, even though they may have been churchianity, uh, still didn't know God. Didn't Christ say that there are some people who call on his name and when he comes back he'll say, I don't know you. Uh, you didn't do what I said. You didn't follow my words. You took my name, but you didn't follow my words. So, here is the chance. Let's read on. In verse 5, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Now, the earth will have been heavily repopulated during that thousand years. There will be no war. There will be no famine. There will be no disease. People will live a hundred years. Isaiah 65 says how long they'll live. Each will get a hundred years. Whether they were a baby or 800 years old when they died... They'll have a hundred years of judgment. Now, you and I are totally today under judgment. Uh, this is our day, or a day of salvation for those who are called now. And when Christ returns, He's not going to separate us like sheep and goats. You'll either be in that first resurrection or you won't. It's just that simple. The judgment will have already been made. 144,000 rise to meet him in the air. Those people who live during the thousand-year reign, the thousand years, will get a hundred years to be judged on whether they will serve God and Christ or not. And that is the separation over a hundred-year lifetime for a thousand years. 
a separation of sheep and goats. Just like right now with us, it's a separation of the sheep from the goats or the wheat from the tares. Who will grow and be qualified and who will not? And the same thing is true in the millennium. Now, when it ends, you'll have all these millions, hundred millions, maybe billions of people again who have lived a hundred years. There'll still be a generation of them alive. And Satan's going to be turned loose on them for a short while. Now, they will have lived their lifetime with no Satan around. And a decision will have to be made by them. They're still alive who they're going to follow. So, Gog and Magog will be gathered to battle by Satan. He seems to be able to influence certain peoples more than others. The number of whom is as the sand of the sea, and they went up on the breadth of the earth, encompassed the camp of the saints, and the beloved city, that's the new Jerusalem, which will be here at that time, with God the Father in Christ ruling here on the earth. Uh, fire came down and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet were, should be were, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. doesn't say people will be tormented. says the devil were. The beast and false prophet get burned up. Were is the force of the Greek there. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Then you have this resurrection that this day pictures. The last great day. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So this is a general resurrection of the dead, small and great. That might be small in the eyes of men and great in the eyes of men, but it also could mean small as in babies and great as in old age grown up. Because everybody has to have a chance. I think the small and great applies more to that. Uh, all right. How do you judge a baby that was two minutes old when it died by his works? You don't. They had no works. So this has to be referring to a period of time in which they live and produce works, good or bad, and during that lifetime they'll be judged by those works, good or bad. Just like we are being now, just like those who live into the millennium will be then, so will all these people have their opportunity to follow God's ways and to show Him that they should live forevermore. So that's when they're judged, is during that period of time while they're alive, having been resurrected and have a chance of children to grow up, uh, you know, people like Judas and Hitler might be there. Was Did Hitler have a real chance at Christianity? Mussolini, Stalin, Clinton, whoever. No, they didn't. They didn't know God. So they'll have their chance. God is fair. 
Then the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and the grave delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and the grave were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So it's talking about three different resurrections here. First, the 144,000 when Christ returns will be the bride of Christ. Then the general resurrection of everybody who lived from Adam until that time, or to the beginning of the millennium, will be brought up and have an opportunity for that last great day. Now, the Bible doesn't say how long the last great day is. A day is as a thousand years, and a day can be as, as a year. I don't know of a place that says a day is as a hundred years. But Isaiah 65 seems to indicate they'll live a hundred years. Uh, so, the last great day might be a total thousand years tacked on to the end of the millennium, in which people will have that chance. Or if they're only going to live a hundred years, uh, it may be that the last great day is only a hundred years long because you're judging people. They won't be having children at that point. You've got to cut it off somewhere. But they'll be living and learning and being judged. So at the end of that time, their judgment will come and they'll either be changed or dead. And then comes the third resurrection. For all of those people from Adam all the way through the whole plan who would not submit to God, who were rebellious, and I think that'll be a small number. And they will be resurrected to see what they rebelled against and what they missed, and then they will be burned up and gone forever. They're not going to live forever in an ever-burning hell. That's not a merciful, kind, loving God that I find described in the Bible. Uh, they'll just be gone and forgotten. Now, that's the way God says it, not the way religion says it. So this day is a very, very important day for, whatever, 60 billion people, because it finishes up the plan and purpose. Now, can God save? I can quote you Romans 11:26, where he says, All Israel shall be saved. Uh, he makes that statement of Israel. Now, that doesn't mean every last single individual, because he says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But it means the vast majority will ultimately be saved. God is a successful God, not a failure. Satan will be bound and can't influence. And God is the greater. So most will be saved. Uh, maybe not quite as high a percentage of Gentiles... Because remember, Satan was able to influence Gog and Magog right there in his short period of time pretty heavily. So, uh, I think God is going to save the great majority of human beings before the thing is over. But some will not make it. Now, here's our chance. We need to make it so we can be there to help those others make it. And... Uh, you know, my, my heart cries out to all these babies that are being aborted, or killed after they're born now. And pretty soon they'll be killed no matter what age. Uh, old people probably first, because they're not very helpful as slaves. They'll save the young and the strong, and then even they will start dying. But God has a plan that will take care of all these. I can't do a thing about the abortion clinics right now, can you? Can't do a thing. Now, if I'm living and reigning with Christ a thousand years as a king and a priest, I can do something about it. 
then we count. Then it matters. Right now, we're helpless. We're eunuchs in Babylon. We can't do a thing about what's going on. All we can do is get ourselves ready to be a help and trust that God will overlook our warts and forgive us and use us as his bride. That's what we're here for. That's what we've been talking about. And the fall festivals wrap up the plan of God from beginning to end with Christ being sacrificed to the time when his sacrifice has been applied for every person who has ever lived and see if they will then live. Why will you die, O Israel? Live. So that pretty well sums up uh, the meaning of this day. I wanted to cover that, but now I want to get back into where I was yesterday because I... I feel that this is important. God is doing a work. He is doing a calling at the end. And I believe he's called me to do a part of it. Uh, I've called us a, uh, a preparation crew. And in a few minutes, I'll probably show you why I chose to say it that way. But as I look back on my life, I feel that from early childhood, God was preparing me in the things he put me through to be able to do the job that we're here now to do. And I think he's tried to take me out of it. I, I do believe he attacked the family there uh, in 1958 when my mother had her problems. And I meant to say, by the way, it came later, uh, the demons were cast out. And she was a very faithful, strong member of the church until age 90 when she died. So God can fix things. Satan can try to tear things up, but God can fix them. And you're going to see him fix a lot of things over the next few years. So I have that to look back in my life. And, you know, when I have some of those experiences, that one was such a very real demonic attack. Uh... And then I've seen other people fighting that over the years. Uh, I have a very deep feeling about horror movies and about any kind of thing that has to do with Satan or Satanism or demonic powers or uh, magical powers and all this kind of stuff. You maybe have not been exposed to some of these things in your life in the way that I have, so you may not recognize the danger that is there, but it is very real, believe me. One of the girls that I, that we had a, a class uh, in Imperial School when I was a senior. I was uh, third from the bottom of the class. That is valedictorian. We only had three. <laughs> so, uh, but there was a girl there who had come who had severe demon problems. And I recognized that early on, and she had very strange behavior. So she went out to Pasadena to go to college the next year when I did. And I get a call from the dorm. She was screaming and tearing somebody's house all apart. And they knew I knew her, so they called me over there. In the meantime, I called Dr. Hay. <laughs> and... And uh, we met over there, and he cast the demons out. But she was never really right uh, mentally and emotionally, so long as I knew her. Uh, 
and haven't heard from her really much since then. But you go through a few of those experiences, and you're very, very careful what you watch and what you listen to. There's a lot of demonic music out there now. And Satan is able to write music and inspire music that somehow gets to your inner core and you like it. I mean, he is a great deceiver, and he can do things that appeal to us. But that music can destroy you, and most of it is based on drugs and alcohol and uh, immorality and everything else. And yet, it has a certain appeal to a great number of people, millions and millions and millions, tens of millions of people around the world are motivated and grabbed by it. But I tell you what, you need to be careful because you can be influenced quicker than you think you can. You really can. And so are these violent games that people play. Kill, 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 kill. Zombies and killing them and all this. Uh, what's Satan's goal? Kill all people. What's God's goal? Cause people to live in peace and safety and harmony. So violence is at the base of most of those games and demonism. And that's why Christ or God destroyed man in Noah's day was because of the violence that was in the land. And we're partaking of the same thing now. And it's going to be physical violence with blood running in the streets, not just bang, bang on TV pretty quick or on a screen. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. But you go through some of these experiences and uh, you're careful. You're very careful. Now, one of the challenges that came to me when we came out here was somebody moved out and when they had a discussion, and they believed that this is Zion, that this is a special area, believed most of the doctrines that I was teaching, had been very inspired by the um, minor Prophet series. And uh, then I learned they didn't believe in tithing. He said, I tried that and God didn't open the windows of heaven to me and I quit it and I'll never do it again. So that was the first doctrinal issue. And when I mentioned it sometime later, he says, well, you accepted me this way and this is the way I'm going to be. <clears throat> and he says, not only that, you've been on the church tit your whole adult life, having your money given to you, and you don't know a thing about life out there. I said, well, I was out of the ministry for over 10 years, and I was in Alaska making my own living for over 12. And uh, I did a lot of things and made a lot of money. You did not, you're lying. You didn't know do any such thing. Stormed off. That's one of the people that have a lawsuit against me right now. Well, I could bring you out some trays of pictures that show all this, um, and me and my family involved in all of it. Yeah, it happened. It's not that hard to prove. But when somebody wants to accuse or get down uh, and call you a liar, well, okay, that's up to you, but I can prove it if you want to stay here and listen. Uh, he didn't. So things like that, where I, I didn't do a thing except say, hey, you ought to obey God's tithing laws. And boy, did I get in trouble on that one. 
And then I got accused of having accepted tithes all my adult life and not knowing a thing about living. Well, I'll tell you what, over the years that I worked for myself, I made enough money to buy and sell him a lot of times. Truly did. Anyway, things will be brought up. I'm going to go through a a few things here. Uh, When I was in the ministry, uh, I'd been assigned to Idaho, and we stayed in Wyoming and Jackson Hole for a year, uh, thanks to someone who was a good friend. But then I felt I needed to be over on the Idaho side, so I started looking around. I bought a new pickup before I left uh, Pasadena or the L.A. area. And I found out that Jeep pickups up there, everybody looked down on. Nobody wanted them. They wanted Fords or Chevys. It depends where you go in the country. Anyway, uh, I wanted a place. So I discovered a 72 and a half acre piece that had uh, about half of it in irrigated pasture and the rest in uh, sand hills, grass. Uh, and it had a little bitty house on it that was probably 70, 80 years old. And I was able to buy it for uh, 35000 And I used the pickup as, a, I think, a $5,000 down payment on it. I'd paid 4800 for it, brand new. And uh, then I borrowed a little extra along with it to buy my dad a used truck and an older Silver Streak trailer so that he could leave Big Sandy and come up and help me build a house. So we had this little 600-square-foot house. We built above it, and we built out from it, and we had 5,000 square feet of new house. And I'd used boxcar floors and boxcar walls and maple floors out of a gymnasium for walls and for studs, and we had solid oak walls that thick on on that house and solid maple walls in some rooms that thick rehabilitated all this got some 30 foot beams out of an old barn that were straight as a string that were probably 80 years old and used them laminated the 2x12s together 2x14s actually no they were 3x14s 30 feet long laminated three of them together to make the beams to support the roof and it was all open beam with uh, you know the glass in the gable ends and Pretty nice house. Uh, been anywhere else other than the wrong side of Blackfoot, Idaho, it would have been worth a million and a half. Today, I mean, you don't find houses like that one built with those used materials that were so beautiful. Anyway, uh, I later went to Montana, so we sold that 72 and a half acres, uh, took a contract on it and another house in Blackfoot as part of the down payment and later sold that house in Blackfoot. So we went to Montana. I got transferred up there. Uh, Now, I want to relate some things that God did that helped me understand Him as my father. My father had a dad who... Well, on a good day, he was nice. But anywhere he was out working, the air was always really blue. He couldn't speak without screaming epithets, and he was pretty hard on his sons. So my dad did not learn the love of a father. Now, 
I sensed that he loved me, but he had no real way of showing it. So it took him until he was probably 65 years old to get to the point he could hug me and say he loved me. And then he learned. But I didn't understand true fatherhood and how to... Ex- I'd never been expressed to me. Now, I, I was not as bound by him uh, and what he was as he was to his father because I was always affectionate with my sons. I held them, I told them I loved them every day, many times a day. So I was able to express that to my sons, but I had not had a father that I could relate to, okay? And therefore, I think I had some difficulty relating to my Heavenly Father. Well, here was one of the times that I think he, he showed me something. Uh, I, had, I was assigned Helena and Great Falls, Montana. And they were 90 miles apart. So I thought, well, I should live where I can service both. And I didn't want to live in either town because I hate cities. So I thought, well, maybe I could get out in the mountains in the middle of that, and I could go either way when the phone rang. So I drew a circle on the parameters that I thought that we could live in and do the job right. So we set out in the car to try to find a place in that ring on the map. Went out to Wolf Creek, which is partway between, right along the Missouri River and the mountains there. It's always a gorgeous place. So we started up Little Wolf Creek, went about five, six miles, and the road started going up a hill. And I looked up at that mountain right there, just right there off the road, and I pointed up there and I says, oh, wouldn't you like to live there? So we went on, drove on around, came back into that little town of Wolf Creek, it's 100 people on 4th of July only. And uh, says, is there any land for sale around here? Somebody at the bar says, well, I think Cabron's selling some acreage up there. Got his information, looked him up, got together. He says, yeah, we're selling some 40s up there on the side of the mountain. He says, uh, he says only one of them has anything on it. Got a little cabin. It was about 20 by 30, about 600 square feet. No power, no electric, <clears throat> and no, no phone or electric, and he took us up on that, and there was a mountain above it, and then there was a little flat place of a few acres, and then it sloped down steeper than the cow's face in front to a big meadow below, and the mountains and trees out from it, oh, and guess where that 40 was, it was exactly where I had pointed, I felt like God just gave us that spot. He says, well, do you want to buy it? I thought, no phone, no electric, yes. (laughs) I felt God had directed me there. Later, the telephone company wanted like 20 grand to put a phone in because it was a mile plus off the highway. And I said, well, I can't afford that. So I got talking to a guy that had a caterpillar down in Wolf Creek. And I said, "Uh, could you? Put a cable in for us? He says, oh, yeah, I can build a tooth and uh, put a roll of wire up there, and it'll feed down through the tooth, and it'll, it'll dig the hole, and it'll string the wire behind it. I said, what will that cost me? 
only says maybe a thousand. And uh, there was one neighbor by then, and I got with him. And I says, "Would you pay five hundred bucks to have a phone?" Yeah. So the phone company, they sent out somebody to supervise five trucks just to supervise this. So in about three, four hours, we both had phones. And I don't remember the exact cost, but it was no more than 500 each. may have been 800 for the whole thing. I just don't remember. So we had phone. And then finally the power company consented to bring us power. Meantime, I had a phone and a box down in town that I'd go check a couple times a day. So I believe God gave us that. Well, I started getting old barn lumber from here and there, and first thing you know, I'd increase that 600-square-foot cabin to about 2,500 square feet of log home up on the mountain. Now, there came time that I told you about when the marriage situation uh, had deteriorated to the point I had to do something, and Mr. Armstrong fired me and disfellowshipped me. We were still in Montana. Uh, Marla and I were married, and uh, we decided, well, I said one day, I've hunted everything there is in Montana and Wyoming here in the Rockies. I says, why don't we move to Alaska? She says, okay, let's do it. So we hadn't even put the house up for sale, okay? And some guy came from New Jersey. He had just inherited quite a bit of money. He went to Wolf Creek Bar and said, uh, anybody got anything for sale around here? Somebody says, well, Daryl up there has been talking about maybe selling out. Why don't you go talk to him? I had picture windows across with the mountains out there. In front, he walked in, took one, la- one look, and said, I'll take it. How much do you want? He already said, I'm taking it. How much do you want? So I named him something about four times what I had paid for it. Uh, and I'd had some sweat equity in it. And he said, okay. I, could, I found out later I could have doubled that. But as soon as he looked out that window, it was his. That's all there was to it. So he says, do you want gold, silver, cash, or check? So I told him what I wanted. He says, I'll be back in 30 days with it. So he left. And Marla and I thought, Yeah. Yeah, he's going to bring that back. Thirty days later, we're sitting at the kitchen table, and he starts handing out what I'd requested, all of it, on the spot. And then he said, uh, you know, I'm a mole, and he says, I want a full basement under this house, which would double the size to 5,000 square feet. He says, do you think you could stay and add on for me? He says, I'll give you $15 an hour under the table. I'll pay for all the food while you're here. You can live in the house free with me. And uh, I'll take you to dinner every Friday night and treat you to steak. And I found out later he'd even take me to the bar and sit there and buy drinks while the clock was running because he wanted a companion to drink with. So during that year, while we doubled the size of his house, I made over 60000 bucks. That got us in a position where going to Alaska seemed a whole lot more viable. Uh, None of that came from the church. That's the point I'm making. 
I've been accused of just being on the church tent all those years and didn't know how to do anything, okay? Well, by then, my dad and I had built me two houses, ultimately 5,000 square feet each, and uh, we went to Montana. But before we went, I, was, I had a bunch of four-wheelers and a snow machine and an older pickup. I had a new one by then that I needed to get rid of. I, I can't haul all this stuff to Alaska. So I got talking to these guys that build log homes. And uh, I said, I need a log package to build me a house in Alaska. Well, we'll make you a log package, and we'll bring it up there and erect it for you. So I says, well, we got enough stuff here that I'm trading you that I what I want is four log packages, and I'll give you all this stuff I've got for them. Now, I need some assurance that if I give you all this stuff before I leave, that the logs will get there. Well, we've got 134 acres up near Bob Marshall Wilderness up in the mountains, up in the timber, with deer and elk and moose and bears all over it. He says, we'll put that up as collateral. We don't want to lose it, but we're going to get you those four log packages. And if by a certain date you don't have them, that land's yours. Well, I never saw a log package, and I wound up with 134 acres of prime hunting land in Montana, which I still wish I had to this day. Finally sold it. So we had some money. I got we headed up there, and I met some people on the border of Yukon and Alaska, and we still needed a house in Alaska. And they hand-scribed these logs about this big around. So I got talking to him, and I could understand Canadian by then. Hey. <laughs> eh? uh, and uh, he says, yeah, I'll deliver you a log package, and it'll cost you this much, and I'll put them up for you. So I said, okay. And I said, I'll pay you when you get it there. Well, can I have some down to get the logs? Okay. Gave him a down payment. So he delivered to Homer, Alaska, down near the spit, but up on the side of the mountain where we can see all of Kachemak Bay, this big log package. In the meantime, I talked to a guy that had an uh, RV sales place in Anchorage who had land down there, and I made a trade with him for the land to put it on. Well, it turns out they were about to go bankrupt, and he never was able to deliver the land. But in the meantime, my log package had been delivered and set up, but I didn't own the land. So I made a trade with a guy in the church for about three and a half acres up near Soldatna on a lake. And I unstacked it on a truck and took it up there and got a crane and restacked the logs and started a house, which turned into a 5,000 square foot log house on a lake in Alaska. No money from the church. Okay? These things can be done. If you use a little imagination, I suppose. Anyway, uh, let's see. I never did really, for very long, go to work for anybody. I did for one guy doing some construction and hanging drywall for a while. But I, I couldn't make money when I was working for him. I was making a salary, but I didn't have time to make deals. 
And I learned that if I looked for opportunities, you could do things. So I started getting a old mobile home here on a piece of ground and fix it up myself and rent it out or sell it on time and be having earnest money, I mean, uh, interest money coming in. And you get a few of those and you're making money while you sleep. That interest just keeps going. That's how bakers make a living, a good living. So I got in touch with a couple realtors in town and got friendly with them. And I said, uh, when your good deal comes up, call me. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. So I was in one of those realtor offices one day talking about a property. In walks this guy and he says, I have had it. I have nine children here. And I needed to ride to town and I called all nine. And nobody had time to give me a ride to town. I have a house on four acres, two lots, that is almost finished. It's all framed up. The roof's on. The insulation's in. It's almost done. Overlooking Cook Inlet and all the volcanoes across it. Smashing view. And a moose in the yard. (coughs) He said... The first $20,000 I see, I'm taking for that whole place, and I'm out of here. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> I hadn't seen it. So I wrote him a check for 1000 bucks, earnest, and then went and looked at the house. And after I looked at the house, I went to my banker, and I said, I need $35,000. 20 to buy this place and 15 to finish it out so I can sell it. And then I told him what it was. And he says, well, I hope you tied it up, didn't you? Yep. Okay, here's 35 grand. Go to it. So I fixed it and uh, traded an old boat to some guys I knew to do the drywall so I didn't have to. And then I put in the cabinets and the, and the appliances and uh, put it on the market. Got 85000 for it. <coughs> A down payment. And they made payments for two or three years. And then I had to foreclose. So I went in and changed the carpet, fixed it up a little again, and sold it again. And by the time I finally got rid of it, I think I'd made about 100000 on that one deal. So there was no church money involved. Okay? <coughs> but all of this, I think, is in preparation for finding this place and developing it and knowing what to do with it when we got it so that we could... Let people be here and have an acre for a hundred dollars a month with all the water they wanted. Unheard of. <coughs> but I was learning how to do this stuff. I think God was putting me through it. Okay, let's see what else. Uh, I learned that I could go to Pasadena where they. The church had its fleet cars would come in. <laughs> They'd pull them in when they were two, three, four years old with anywhere from fifty to 90,000 miles on them. They'd go through them, and then they'd uh, put them out a lot to sell. And I found that if I would take one and pull it to Alaska with another, that I could make good money uh, even driving them that far. You know, like a couple of Grand Cherokees with four-wheel drive that were in demand in Alaska. I could pull them up there and do that. So I bought each one of my kids and my ex-wife 
uh, a fleet car. And then I hauled several to Alaska and sold them and made good money. Thank you. It wasn't church money. It's church cars. But I paid for them with other money. You know, I've, I've done a lot of things. Okay. Comes the Exxon Valdez. Well, I had a little commercial fishing experience there, too, with some friends. But uh, that oil tanker hit the rock in Valdez in 1989. And oil was going all out of it. So I heard that the next day, I heard that they were going to pay $16 and something for polishing rocks. So I thought, well, 16 an hour wouldn't be bad. I'll go polish rocks or see what. So I jumped in the car and headed around there, got to Valdez, and the first people I ran into was the uh, man in charge of the whole Exxon operation, and with him, their, uh, their uh, co-contractor, Vico, their head man was there, together. And so I struck up a conversation. I says, I hear you're paying to polish rocks. Well, yeah, we're going to hire people. I says, well, what do you need? Oh, we are desperate for tugs and barges. I said, okay, see you soon. So I called my friend in Soldatna, and I said, Exxon and Vico need tugs and barges. And they're going to pay good money to lease them from us. So he said, okay. He headed down the California coast looking for tugs and barges that the Exxon people had missed. I did the same thing all the way down to all the towns in southeast Alaska and wound up in Seattle. At least a few on my way down for almost nothing. Some of them would hardly float. You had to put a pump in them to keep them pumped out so they'd float. But Exxon had passed them up. So I get to Seattle, I go down to the wharf, and I find a 60-foot tugboat there that runs, they say. And... uh they wanted twenty nine grand for it. Okay, I'll take it. So I called Exxon, told them I got a sixty foot tugboat here. Uh, they sent a four hundred foot barge that was on his way to Alaska by, picked it up, hauled it to Alaska for free. Uh, then they gave us three thousand a day to use that tugboat to spray rocks. I'm, I'm cleaning the rocks, sort of. <laughs> That tugboat that summer made $450,000, paid for itself several times. Uh, my friend found a landing craft down in San Diego, an 80-footer with the front that comes down, the kind they land on beaches and the soldiers run out and get shot, uh, or they haul cargo and dump it on the beach or whatever. And uh, he bought it, 450 grand. And it had been all rebuilt. We finally got it to Alaska after transmission went out and this and that. And they paid us 5000 a day to use it, along with other stuff. So there for a while we were making 30000 a day on the stuff that we had leased to Exxon. And it was costing us maybe four or 5000 a day uh, for the leases, if that. But anyway, we turned over $3 million that summer. And that was cash money. In fact, we were the biggest private contractor on that spill. Had, I think, nine pieces of equipment working. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't get any more stuff on. Exxon just, they'd hardly talk to me. 
What's going on? And then I see this guy leasing stuff to them, stuff that I had turned down. Exxon turned it down, I turned it down, and now he was leasing it to them. How is this so? Well, at the end of the summer, I found out. He had set aside one of those boats as a party boat. And all the Vico and Exxon uh, officials had free use of the boat. They gave you any kind of alcohol you wanted from anywhere you wanted it. All kinds of food of any kind from anywhere you wanted it. Any color or shape of girl from anywhere on earth that you wanted her. And it was all free. Then I saw how he had been getting those contracts. I didn't even think that way. You know, I, he went to jail at the end of the summer, and a bunch of those uh, officials got fired. So it, it worked out. Anyway, to make a longer story shorter, uh, it came the end of the summer. Unfortunately, I had taken out about $200,000 in cash through the summer, and then I'd, we'd bought some, a Mercedes and some trucks and some other equipment and so on for various things. So I was in the field working with Exxon and overseeing the fleet, and my friend of the, friend at the time was back in Soldotna managing the money. So I get back to the end of the summer, and I say, I, there should have been $2 million cash in the bank. So I get there, I says, well, uh, we need to wrap this up. He says, well, there's 70000 in the bank. I'll give you half of it. I said, 70000 There should be $2 million there above all expenses. Well, I found out about some airplanes over in Bangladesh, poorest country maybe on earth, Bangladesh. I mean, they were just the frame, and everything was tattered and torn and broken and engines gone and whatever. I bought a bunch of these airplanes, and I'm going to bring them to Seattle and re redo them and uh, restore them and make lots of money. The planes, as far as I know, are still in Bangladesh. Uh, he had invested a whole lot of money in the stock market, and it took a huge drop, and he lost every bit of it. I'm on the edge of unhappiness here. Uh, in fact, God made me deal with some pretty severe emotions. I think for the first time in my life, I actually had hate to the degree of murder in my heart. Because I would lay in bed thinking of different ways that I could do this and get away with it. That was hard to come by. Doing it would not have been a problem. It's the getting away with it where it gets sticky. But had he ever walked over a hill where I was out hunting, that would have been a tough day, tough decision. And somebody says, well, Daryl, it's only money. I said, yeah, it's my money. And it took me a while to deal with that. And I finally got to the point that the hatred ceased, and I want to see him in God's kingdom someday. I don't want to see him again on this earth, but I'd like to see him in God's kingdom someday. <laughs> so, you know, we have to deal with things sometimes. Well, fortunately, I had taken out a couple hundred thousand, but what in the meantime he had also done, without telling me, we were partners, is we had these two boats and a barge, 
400, I mean, an 80-foot landing craft, a 60-foot tug, and a 150-foot barge that we owned free and clear. Just bought them. Well, when he started getting in this financial type, he borrowed 50000 with all three as collateral. And he blew the 50000 and when I found out about it, they'd already been repoed for fifty grand, and we had about $600,000 worth of equipment there. Now, if I'd had those three pieces of equipment, I could have made millions in Alaska, transporting logs, transporting barges, taking food to villages where there were no roads. We could have made an awful lot of money, hauling fish, you, know, you name it up there. The seaway is the way. So, fortunately, I'd taken out some money. I'd paid off all the little pieces of property I owned. Uh, bought Marla a brand new Suburban. Told her she could have any car she wanted. I want a Suburban. Okay, she ordered exactly what she wanted. It's still out here 30 years old. Because I told her when she got it, I said, I'm not going to buy this for you unless you keep it 10 years. Okay. When it got 10 years old, I says, how do you like your car? I still love my Suburban. Want to go for another 10 years? Okay. That happened when it turned 20 again, and it's still just like new inside. If you get in it, it's just like new. Even the driver's seat's not worn. And it's 30 years old now. It outlived her. But anyway, that was a good start, and uh, I paid off all the properties, so now I didn't have any payments to make, and the income was all mine. Okay, well, God had something else in mind. Ran into an old guy who was a friend from years back in the church uh, who had been involved with a huge developer in Los Angeles. He was in charge of all the dirt work on the biggest subdivision that had ever gone in in the hills there above uh, Los Angeles. So I bought a new truck in Seattle. I was flew down to get it and pick up my boys at Big Sandy because they were sick of the college and what it had become. And... This guy calls me out of the blue. He says, can you come by Pahrump, Nevada? He says, I've got a business going out here, and I need a partner. Okay, I'll come by. Well, he was putting in mobile homes, had a mobile home dealership set up, and he had bought a subdivision on time at 24% interest, I found out later. And he says, if you can get me $50,000... We can make this thing a total success. We'll make lots of money. And uh, you can fly home every weekend to see your family in Alaska because uh, we'll be making money. So by reputation, I said, okay. So I found him 50 grand, and I became a full partner in the business. Well, I'll get down there and I'll find out what he was trying to do was impossible in Pahrump, Nevada, 60 miles northwest of Vegas at the time. Because people were buying into subdivisions in Las Vegas. But Pahrump was out in the countryside, and the only reason they wanted to go out there was to buy five or ten acres so they could have a horse property. They didn't want a curb and gutter and a house in a subdivision, and he couldn't sell them. And, he couldn't, and then we took over a street dealership on mobile homes in Vegas, and we found out that the you couldn't put a mobile home in Las Vegas or Clark County, most of it, unless it was in a trailer park. And the trailer parks were nearly full, and it was hard to sell mobile homes. So, 
uh, we had a salesman there. And then I found out that he had a girlfriend at another mobile home dealer. And every customer that came in our door when Jim and I weren't there, he sent down to his girlfriend to make the sale from another company, and then he would get a kickback from her, so they were both making a nice living and not selling any of our homes. And I fired his butt as soon as I found out. So this wasn't going real well. So down in Beaver Dam, Arizona, there was a subdivision right there on Beaver Dam Creek, all nice curbed and guttered and everything. But Arizona has income tax, and Nevada doesn't. So Jim said, oh, we can get this subdivision. We can put homes in there. This will save us. I said, Jim, people want to live in Nevada, not Arizona down there. And since then, I think uh, Mesquite, Nevada has probably quadrupled or more in size since the mid-'90s when this was going on. I said, it just won't work, Jim. Oh, yes, it will. So he finally convinced me to go ahead and sign it, 24% interest. You've got to sell houses fast to make any money doing that. Well, I get down there. I took that one over, moved down to Beaver Dam. Having trouble, I sold a few, but not very many. It was tough. They wanted to be in Nevada. So it was failing. The whole company was failing. Herbert Armstrong talked about how his businesses failed, and then God moved him and put him to work. So this one was failing. And I had been, on my branch of it that I was running at the time, I'd have been having to put the expenses on my credit cards just to stay there and work. And I'd run up quite a few thousand dollars on credit cards, 25, 30, whatever it was, uh, just to keep the business operating. And I'm thinking, this isn't working too well. Well, meantime, one morning I woke up in the middle of this failure that was going on. I've had some successes, and I've had to deal with some failures uh, to learn. Anyway, uh, I wake up, or start waking up, and I have this dream or vision, whatever it was, and it says, I want you to prepare a place for my people. And I'm waking up saying, what? What are you talking about? Me? What are you talking about? I want you to prepare a place near here for my people. And I'm trying to absorb this and trying to understand it and trying to accept it at the same time. And it was just as clear and in technicolor as any movie you ever saw. I mean, it wasn't one of those strange dreams that go everywhere. Like the one I had as a junior in college. And I, I'm, I'm saying, well, if you insist, okay. Uh, I didn't know what it meant. I want you to prepare a place for my people near here. Beaver Dam is barely over an hour's drive from here and less than an hour's drive probably from Zion, about the same. And I used to come up to Zion for the Sabbath sometimes because it was beautiful. But I would have never in a hundred years probably figured out that it was had any importance to God. That's how stupid I am. So I immediately went around because somebody called me and wanted to trade land for some homes. So I head around above Kingman, check it out. Not going to work. That wasn't what he was talking about. What's he talking about? 
And I looked around and I didn't know, have any clue what to do. So I kind of put it on the back burner and kept, you know, watching to see if I could figure out anything. Well, meantime, a guy comes in. He says, I got some money I need to invest. What would three homes cost me? So I gave him a figure, and he bought three mobile homes, three big double-wide mobile homes on lots. Well, that gave me enough money to pay off all my credit cards, get the debts that I was responsible for out, and clear up the business there, write a letter to the Nevada Secretary of State saying I've resigned, so when it went into bankruptcy, I'd already be out, and uh, headed for Alaska. Kind of forgot about prepare a place near Beaver Dam. Alaska's quite a ways away. So I get this call. I Meantime... In 92, I began to listen to Jerry Fleury. He just started up a little while before, whenever it was, and uh, John Reitenbaugh. And what Jerry was saying made a certain amount of sense to me at first. So I wrote him a letter and told him I thought he was on the right track. And being an ex-minister, he published it in his next magazine uh, because it had my name on it. Uh, And it... Maybe a month later, I'd realized he was off base, uh, but I'd been getting involved with John Reitenbaugh. So I started going down to Anaheim for services and so on. And the, but then when I went back to Alaska in the beginning of the winter of 94, I get a call from John. Uh, no, while I've been going to Anaheim and getting ahead of myself, they started trying to get me to give sermonettes. Wanted me to work me back into the ministry. John Reed, who was there, and John Reitenbaugh. And I says, no, I'm just not interested. Uh, been there, done that. Seventeen years I was in the ministry, and uh, I have really enjoyed being out, thank you. I've made money, I've fished, I've hunted, I've done all these things. One thing about fatherhood that I kind of skipped over, I meant to say, uh, some of these things you see here on the wall, like this muskox, If you put in for a permit to get one, you have about a 3% chance of drawing it. If you put in for a buffalo, they have a small herd, two small herds up there. It's about a 5% chance of drawing it. Uh, This sheep was in the toke management area, and you had about a 5% chance of drawing one. I drew all three of those. Oh, and a Kodiak bear was about a 5-6% chance as well. And... I drew all four of those the first year I put in for them. Well, there's a fellow in the church there named Del Branson who lived down at Seward, and he'd he'd been in the church quite some time, but he said, uh, I've been putting in for those permits and others for 30 years, and I haven't drawn one yet. He said, who do you know? (laughs) I didn't know anybody in this fish and game department. But my father in heaven knew I liked to hunt and he knew that I enjoyed the animals. And I think those were a gift for my heavenly father. I can't explain it any other way. 3% to 5% chance and you do it the first year you put in? Unbelievable. Maybe one, but not four. Okay? I think God was teaching me. He loved me. And I almost break up saying that. 
Anyway, they tried to get me back in the ministry, and I didn't want to go. And this kept on for some time. I finally says, well, okay, I'll give a sermonette. And I did. Gave two or three. And they says, uh, well, when we go to the feast in San Antonio this year, I think that was 92. Might have been 93. It doesn't matter. Uh, you have a sermon. Oh, didn't want that. But I went. I gave one on healing. Because it had been thrown out by Tkachis. Anyway, when I went home the, that winter of 94, I get this call from John Reitenbaugh sometime during the winter. And he says, uh, John Rotten, John Reed and I'd love to come up and see you next summer. Be in Alaska and you can show us around, this and that. I didn't know it was a job interview. So anyway, they came up and we showed them around. They stayed for a week and John doesn't stay anywhere for a week except home, and uh, went to the feast that fall. Well, John had put me on the board of directors by then. So he starts out with this woe is me story at the board of directors meeting. We are so covered up at Charlotte. We don't have enough manpower to put out the magazine and the letters and to take care of the churches and he says, I need somebody qualified to do these things. He says, we're just swamped. We're overwhelmed. And I'm sitting here with all this experience saying, oh. But he laid it on. I finally said, well, maybe I could be of help. I don't know. But he says, okay, let's talk. So we went to lunch, and he hired me. He made sure it was okay with Marla. Says when you can be when can you be in Charlotte? Well, we had our house, we had properties, everything in Alaska. That was at the feast. I says I'll be there the first of January, ready to go to work. So Marla was going to stay in Alaska, and we put the house up for sale and the other properties and whatnot. So I arrived January first, <clears throat> go to work. This went on for maybe two. I don't think three weeks, somewhere between the 10th and the 14th, I think, <clears throat> I had this vivid dream. And it was about Haggai and Zechariah in the end time work. Very startling and scary. And it got me to studying, and I told John about it. I told uh, three or four other people around the office and a couple of church members about it. So, man, we began to go through the Bible, studying those two books and others. And the message there began to come clear. And I began to see that all these scriptures were talking, first of all, about the church, and second of all, about physical Israel, which was what finally spawned the Minor Prophets series. <clears throat> but Herbert Armstrong had always said, <clears throat> the Bible is written to the church. And I began to realize, not only was he right, but he didn't know how much it had been written to the church, as well as secondarily to the nation. But anyway, following that, uh, John sent me to Chicago. What time is it? Well, it's early yet. When sundown's about 7.10? Well, Anyway, he sent me to Chicago for Passover, and Marla flew down. So 
we had the Passover on the 14th. Next day, uh, people were eating donuts and pizza because we didn't understand that it's a seven-day deal instead of eight. So I was preparing a sermon for the first holy day. At least I thought it was the first holy day. And then I went to sleep. To, you know, I just got tired reading and fell asleep. I woke up a little bit later. This was, this was not a dream. It was, I could call it nothing more than a vision. And in it, just as clear as a bell again, like Technicolor, there were two maps. One was of the Middle East, and one was of Utah and its environs. Just alike. What do you mean just alike? See a Galilee, Bear Lake on the Idaho-Utah border. Uh, Wasatch Range, Jordan Rift Valley. Mountains going down each of them. We always thought Jordan was the land of Moab. So here's Moab, Utah. Later I find out it's the only place on earth named Moab. Uh, here's Zion, and here's Petra. We'd always thought Petra was the place of safety. They were offset. Here was the Great Salt Lake. Here was the Dead Sea. Here was Sodom and Gomorrah. Here was Las Vegas and Los Angeles. Here was Gulf of California. Here was Gulf of Aqaba. It's like they were the same thing. The only thing that missing was Jerusalem. It wasn't on either map. So there's where I learned that, that this is the true Zion. And this was the original promised land. Boy, we began to study that feverishly and found out that the promised land wouldn't fit in the Middle East and that the promised land, as described in the Bible, didn't fit over there at all. And, you, and you've heard all of this. So, began to come together. Zion is the place, and it's not far from Beaver Dam. Okay, I'll go out and start looking for a place near there. But I didn't know how near. So I was looking all over the four quarter corners area. In New Mexico, southwest Colorado, Arizona, and Utah. Trying to get something close to here. Well, anything in Utah was real expensive because of the parks and the Mormons. And you also had to pay almost as much for water as you did land. Because the state controlled all the water. Then I found that... Uh, in Arizona at the time, for a $10 permit, you could drill anywhere you wanted, and any water you found was yours. Well, I went all over the Southwest looking for a place that was within reasonable distance of Zion. Hadn't found anything. John Reitenbaugh had come out here at, on Christmas Day of 96 to look at Zion, and after he looked it all over, he says, this may be the place. But it's not the time. And he was, it was the place, but it wasn't the time. He was right. So come, we had a disagreement over the calendar, and he fired me in 2000 in July. And I thought, oh, here's my ticket out of the ministry. <laughs> Goody. Uh, but I wanted to go to Zion for the feast. So I told Marla, I said, I'm going up to Zion for the feast, and you need to decide if you're coming with me. I didn't try to push her at it at all. 
And then I started getting phone calls from all over the place, people saying, well, I hear you're not with John anymore. Uh, and we've heard these Minor Prophets tapes. Where are you going to the feast? And I said, Zion. Well, can we come? Well, I wasn't planning on having a feast, just me and maybe my wife's coming. Well, we want to come. Well, okay. So 70 people show up between July and Feast of Trumpets, or Feast of Tabernacles. So we had our first phone hookup on Trumpets of 2000. And 70 people showed up for the feast. And I'm going through all this information about the area and about what God had been showing. And then uh, they said they wanted me to be their pastor. I said, well, I wasn't planning on starting a church. We got 400. I think that's enough. Or whatever the number. Well, we want you to do it. Well, okay. I'll be your pastor. So the next feast... I loaded up a trailer and brought a bunch of stuff out because I decided to move here, or to Kanab at least, to get close, <clears throat> and rented a storage unit and unloaded my trailer. Well, I gave a sermon there and <clears throat> at the feast, and several people connected that maybe they ought to be here too. So they started making plans to move. Well, Paul Clark from Houston was, he always liked to be first at everything. So he shows up about two months after the feast with a bunch of his stuff and rents a house. And he, I'm first. I says, no, nah. I says, I got my storage unit over there already full of stuff. And by then I'd rented a house in Kanab. Wasn't trying to beat him. I was just trying to get the job done. But uh, in any case, a bunch of people moved, quite a few families to Kanab, and were looking for land. Hadn't found any land. Feast of 2002... John Gann noticed a little ad in the local paper of 110 acres for sale, and he brought it to me. I said, well, I don't have time during the feast. After the feast, I'll go look at it. Well, meantime, some other members had come out and looked at it, because they were, we were all wanting some land. And Bill Durkee said, yeah, Daryl won't like this. This won't work. He'll turn this down. So after the feast, I got hold of the guy and found out where it was, and, or Came out, looked around, or, or Durkee brought me out, whatever it, was, whatever it was. And I looked around, and I said, I think this will do. Shocked him. So I said, but I don't know if this is where God wants us. John Reitenbaugh told me, if God wants us to have some land, it either needs to be given to us or nearly given to us. And he had considered moving to Colorado, and then he thought that could break the bank. And decided not to. He got scared. But he decided to move me out to Colorado so I could be on the spot and look for places. And I had gone into his office to propose that I move to Colorado and take care of mainly the western half of the U.S. as a district superintendent. And uh, he says, well, that's what I was thinking. Since we both thought of it, why don't you do it? Now, here was the next time. I had had two of my sons working out of uh, Aspen, Colorado, there at, uh, well, what's that little, little burg, anyway, at the Aspen Institute or whatever it was. And uh, it was a kind of a big deal. Hollywood stars came there and made donations and all kinds of stuff. And uh, they were both working there. So I'm going to come out and explore. Oh, I just came out to see them on that visit. 
<clears throat> I come out west of Colorado Springs, about 100 miles. There's a place there called Buena Vista. Beautiful valley of the Arkansas River, under 14,000 foot peak, several of them. Just right at the Continental Divide. I drove over the hill and saw that valley and said, Oh man, would I love to live here. Stopped and looked for a while, then went on to Aspen. Well, now, when John said move out there, he was thinking Denver. And I thought, hmm, I'm going to go back and look at that valley. So I came back over, and it was 150 miles or more from Denver, whatever it was. And I found a house for rent. So I rented it up on a mountainside overlooking the, the Arkansas River. That's the second time I had said... Would I ever love to live here? And there I was. And I said, Father in heaven, I'm beginning to feel that you might actually love me in spite of myself. You know what I mean? Still early, isn't it? Uh, you know, there were many times I should have died. And I think Satan tried to destroy my family. There was one time there when we were in Montana that the church had gotten me a Subaru wagon. They were kind of narrow for their length and their height. Anyway, uh, I went to sleep coming home one night. And that was during my time when I told you in my life that things were kind of out of control. And uh, I was drunk actually quite drunk, and uh, woke up, headed out in the median, and rolled the car over on his top. I find my way out, find my way upright. Now what? It's 2 o'clock in the morning, there's no traffic. I'm standing there wondering, what do I do now? Hope the cops don't come. And uh, here comes a car. They stop. Two guys get out and say, uh, what can we do for you? Can we call the cops for you? I, says, I said, no, don't do that. I said, help me roll this thing up on its feet. So we rocked it a while, rocked it a while. We finally flipped it over up on its feet. About ten minutes later, when it all came down, it started up, and I drove it home. Okay? I was doing about 90 when, it, when I went off the road. Uh, then they got me another one. And I was quite drunk that night. I called some members and told them I was coming from Phillipsburg out to their house. And I got this bright idea that it would, it would be nice to amaze them at how fast I could get there. So I'm peeling there and come up over the pass, and the highway goes this way, and there's a draw right in front of me. And I top the pass at probably 85. So I whip it over to try to stay on the road. And it rolls, goes up against a cliff. This time it landed right side up, having rolled clear over. And uh, I get out and look around, and I got a flat tire, so I change it. The windshield's gone, the roof's down, I'm like this. So I pull back up on the road, and this is when I noticed there was another flat tire. Well, I don't got any more spares, I'm going to the ranch. So I get there park the car in front of the house, and go in, and they say, Ah, you made it. You want a beer? I said, That sounds like a good idea. I said, I just roll the car. Ah, ha, ha, sure, you roll the car, right. 
So before bedtime, he goes out to check the horses. He comes in and says, you did roll that car, didn't you? I said, yeah, I told you I did. Well, Dad and I had beat the first one out, straightened it up. He was pretty good with body work tools. And, uh, well, that was, that was before I got this, the second one I just told you I rolled. Anyway, it's when Terry and I were breaking up, and she was going to move to Idaho in that house that I'd traded for. And uh, she and my daughter and my sister were in the car, and she rolled that same car over into the creek, down on the ice, uh, middle of the winter, into the creek. Nobody was hurt. Dad and I straightened that car out again, and by then I bought it from the church, a little bit ashamed. Um, so my brother bought it. Well, he and Dad were coming from Idaho to Montana, and Mark rolled that same car for the third time. Well, meantime, before Terry had rolled it into the creek, uh, we had a wagoneer for a while. She was taking the kids to Helena, and she hit on the ice, and she hit this divider and flipped it over. That's five. And then the kids were riding with some Wolf Creek kids in a car out to hold her down at the lake, and they got to speeding coming home and rolled the car. Now, this is all in the space of about a year and a half. Six rollovers with my family, and nobody was hurt at all. I had one little scratch once. Nobody in the family had ever rolled a car before, and nobody in the family has ever rolled a car since. Six of them in that period of time, and nobody hurt. Was the devil after us? Uh, I kind of think so. <laughs> and was, was I needing to straighten up? Yes. Yes, that was a pretty rough patch in my life in quite a few ways and ended up in the marriage ending and divorce and so on. All right, meantime, Marla and I had been married now for many years, and one of the charges that our neighbors have, and this is how this started, is I want you to know what's going on here. Uh, my brothers had moved out here, and they began, out of jealousy, to tell everything negative they could think of about me to Jesse Hersler and some of the Rome Hills and various ones, or whoever would listen. And I don't even know what all they told. Some of it may have been true, some of it half-true, some of it untrue. I don't know. But they told a lot of stories, and I'm sure some of them were true. Okay? Uh but one of the charges that was made was that Marla and I were living in adultery. That our marriage was invalid. All right, let's think about that a moment. Herbert Armstrong had declared it fraudulent and annulled it. Now, she had been married uh, to a guy who kind of faked conversion in the church but never was. And then he found him a girlfriend and so on. And that marriage broke up. So Herbert Armstrong didn't understand Matthew 19, that Pornea and, uh, oh, what's the other word? Or that Pornea actually included both premarital sex and postmarital. That's fornication and adultery. He always thought it was just before marriage, sex before marriage, and uh, that could be broken up because you'd defrauded. Told him you were a virgin when you weren't. But adultery, everybody knew you weren't a virgin then, but you couldn't divorce over adultery. 
well, it was later, years later, that I discovered, because I always wondered about that. Uh, I discovered a woman in the book of Revelation, there in Revelation 2, Jezebel, who was a married woman, and she committed pornea, <coughs> which was adultery. And it was grounds for divorce. <coughs> Not bound anymore. So, based on Matthew, or Matthew 19, Revelation, and 1 Corinthians 7, I felt that we were clear to be married. Now, what was God's view? It's all that matters, right? What does God think? Well, I had gone through a pretty rough patch for about 8-10 years in my life, <coughs> which we need not talk about. Uh, it was bad, okay? Bad. And Marla and I got married. We'd been married for quite a few years. And when I started getting these dreams about Zion and about all these things, if I were living in adultery, why would God give them to me? Why not give them to somebody who wasn't? <coughs> somebody who hadn't been a sinner in the same realm or the same category as I had been. We won't compare ourselves among ourselves, but you ain't got a chance. But that had been like 40 years ago, okay? This stuff that they were telling here was from 35, 40 years ago. 45 now or more. But it went around and it went around and it went around and people began to say, well, you know, Daryl must, you know, he's, he's just not, he's not qualified to be in the ministry because of all this stuff. And that opened the door for them to begin to find things wrong with me now. And there are some. Uh, I part my hair on the wrong side for one thing. No, I'm, I'm kidding. But, you know, none of us are perfect. We all have our foibles. But anyway, uh, then I got accused of auto theft. Charles Post claimed that I stole this white pickup I'm driving around here. No, I had guardianship of the woman whose husband died and uh, took care of all her things and looked after her. She was in Kansas. She wanted to move out here, so uh, I authorized that the pickup be brought out here for her and then would fly her out. Well, meantime, some of her neighbors began to complain to the social worker. I'm telling them, this woman cannot live alone. So I didn't put her in a nursing home. The care people called me and says, we want to test her to see if she can live alone. I says, okay, I authorized the test. Well, they tested her and said, there's no way she can live alone anymore. So I went back to Kansas and looked at all the tests. And they says, we need to put her in a nursing home now. So I said, okay, do it. Well, her truck was out here. I had power of attorney and everything else. Uh, and here it sat. But I, didn't, I couldn't register it. Uh, yeah, I could register it, but I didn't have the title, so I didn't know I could. So it just sat here for two or three years. And then I went into DMV and I said, what can I do with this truck? She's in a nursing home. And I can't title it and drive it. She said, well, just do a registration only. I said, huh, can you do that? She said, oh, yeah, that's no problem. So I registered it in her name. It's still in her name. She's probably dead now. I don't know for sure. As, uh, they, they asked me three or four years later not to be her 
caretaker any or caregiver caretaker whatever the title was guardian anymore because Kansas law required them to be in state. So they said, can we appoint somebody else? So I said, okay. Well, here's the truck still. So Charles says, I stole it. And he went to the cops and tried to get them to stick me with Grand Theft Auto. And the, the cops laughed at him and says, he's got the papers. There's, there's no problem here. Forget it. So then Marla had died. And since she had had Lyme's disease and was very, very ill for particularly the last ten years, the last two or three years, it just got worse and worse and worse. And we had read and knew that if it ever attacks your internal organs, it can kill you very quickly. So she had, I mean, she had her sheep and goats and horses and stuff for a reason to get out of bed because she hurt so much all the time and felt so sick and tired that she needed something to get her up out of bed. And the animals were it. Well, she, she suddenly got to the place she couldn't even pick up the bins and give them hay, so I had to start helping her. And she started downhill very, very rapidly and died within two to three weeks. Well, Charles was absolutely convinced I had murdered her because he had heard us arguing out here one time and he heard a pane of glass break. And he's probably right. But he thought that I hated her because we had had an argument. Why, he didn't hear all of our arguments. We'd had quite a few over the last 37 years. And we were usually over it in 15 minutes and hugging again. Because we didn't hold grudges and we had unconditional love. And whatever came up got settled, sometimes loudly. And then it was over. <clears throat> but I had murdered her. He called and had an investigation into it. I had a sheriff call me up. I said, well, I've got the death certificate here. Everything's in order. Uh, uh, the hospice people were here. The nurse that takes care of George had been here helping with her. And uh, he says, well, you saved me a lot of time. Sean, you know, tell him. I sent him copies of the papers. So he says, everything's in order. No problem. You didn't murder your wife. I said, well, I know that. I'm glad you know that. But Charles still believes it. He still believes we were living in adultery the whole time. Uh, and then they accused me of adultery here with some of the women on this property. How did that get started? Well, they, some of those who worked late up at Zion came in after work around 10, 30, 11, 12 o'clock at night, and my pickup was at Charnell's house. Oh, what's he doing at Charnell's house? It happened again. They never saw my car down there. And then you know what else? The truck was down there all night long. They saw it the next morning. He didn't even go home. Well, she was borrowed that truck occasionally to haul furniture or the car was broken down. So the car, the truck would be at her house late, and sometimes it was there overnight. I wasn't there, but the truck was. Now, you know what? Nelson also borrows that truck sometimes, and there have been times it's been at his house all night. Nelson and I are having an affair. <laughs> Same logic, isn't it? Never happened. 
So all these things began, once they started, they took on arms and legs and so on, and all kinds of wild and evil imaginations occurred. And actually, I hadn't done any of those things with any of the people. Hadn't done any murder, hadn't been adultery, hadn't been auto theft, and what all else there was. Now, am I trying to tell you I'm a perfect citizen? No. I have ungodly thoughts every day. Sometimes I have ungodly actions, just like you do. We're all in this together. Now, I believe God brought me here for a purpose to do a job. But these people <coughs> decided that they could do this better than I could. So they started a rent strike and withheld over $40,000 in lease payments. And then they filed a lawsuit made a statement in front of the uh, county commissioners, one of them did, that they had a lease to buy, purchase option. They never had such a thing ever. Ever. They can't show it to this day. They never had one. But they lied to the county commissioners saying that they had a purchase option. No such thing. So, and then... Some others of them lied about other things because they had decided they needed this land and they could run this place better than I could. What's with this Moses? <laughs> you know, I'm not Moses, but same attitude. We can run it better than Moses can. Miriam and Aaron said it. Korah and all the others said it. So they even formed a corporation with the express purpose of managing church property. To put me aside. Now, I've not done everything perfectly, but I learned over the years, and God put me through it, how to develop land, how to fix things, how to put up buildings. I built a commercial building in Alaska as well. 7-Eleven with the store and the bathhouses and everything. So I kind of had a little background that God had given. And... For 17 years now, the price has still been $100 a month for a full acre with all the water you want to use. Where are you going to find that? Only cheaper place you can find that lives under a bridge in San Francisco. If that. So I don't think I've managed it that badly. And all the tithes and offerings have come in. We've built those two big buildings. We've built uh, all kinds of things. I use my own money from an interest off of a loan to put this big equipment shed up. I supplied all the metal for that, which was quite a few thousand dollars. So I put my heart, mind, body, soul, and money into this place so that others could still have it cheaply and live here and have what they needed. Now, that's my testimony. But they were trying to find every way they can to get rid of me, and there's still a lawsuit out there where they want the judge to give them the land, I conceded to let them have a tenants in common instead of just a lease. Now they won't follow the tenants in common, and they're suing me for not following it. And Nelson can attest, I've been following everything in it. We tried to have a meeting just as it says and invite them. They started a government without inviting us, and they had to invite everybody that was a tenant in common by certified letter to even have a meeting. And they didn't do that. We did. They didn't. And everything's supposed to be shared. 
But they decided that the shares that uh, Criders have over here, since they don't have houses on them, should pay less than the ones with houses. But the tenants in common says each share pays the same. So they're not following it there. And they're suing me for not following it. And this costs a lot of money with lawyers. So there have been a lot of lies told. Uh, have there not, Nelson? Surely have there been any lies told? Al was here from the very beginning. He's seen this whole thing. He knows we've taken care of people. He knows we haven't charged him a lot. How much are you paying a month? A hundred a month. Oh. You know what they're charging each other now? Two and a quarter. Except for those that have extra lots, criters, and they're paying less. Which is contrary to the TIC. So this just goes on and on and on. Now, let's wrap this up. It says that there will be rebels in Anatoth. It's one of the prophecies about Anatoth, and I think God caused this to be named Anatoth. And in Jeremiah 11, it says that those rebels are going to be put to famine and the sword, and that they will all die there, man, woman, and child. Isn't that what he did with Korah and others? Yeah, he's going to do the same thing here. It's just a matter of time. He says he's going to make us in Micah 4 and Isaiah 41 or 2, 41 I think, that he'll make us a sharp threshing machine. And we can thresh our enemies with hooves of iron and, and uh, horns of steel or something like that, it says. God's going to take care of this. I'm not worried about it. I am moving forward in faith with those who are still faithful and who recognize that God caused me to come and find this place and start getting it ready for his people to come to Zion. Now, God can remove me in a split second. Sometimes I have a heart rhythm problem. It wouldn't take very much for that sucker just to quit. It really wouldn't. God can remove any one of us real fast. He did Ananias and Sapphira. He did Korah. He didn't Moses, by the way. And even Miriam and Aaron, he permitted to live after the leprosy, but they learned a lesson, I think. If God puts somebody in charge and gives them direction and tells them what to do, and then they go do it, in spite of themselves, in spite of the fact that I'm not perfect, I'm not. Still have problems and make mistakes. But I'm not overtly sinning in any way. I got engaged not too long ago, and I, at some point I realized I didn't feel God wanted me to get married at this time. And I spend still quite a bit of time with someone here. Uh, and we're good friends. But I broke the engagement because I didn't feel God wanted me to be married at this point. But the marriage, or but the the relationship was not consummated, and it will not be physically. What I'm telling you, in case that one starts around, no, it's not. And even though we spend some time working together at Shunapa, and even travel some together, that has not happened, and it ain't gonna, because I've made up my mind. God is first, so. 
I don't know whether they've started talking about that yet or not, but if they haven't, they will. Bet, bet on it. So I'll just cross that bridge now and tell you things are on the up and up. It's the way it is. And I'll look you in the eye and tell you that. Because that's the way it is. So I am here in my own weak, ineffective way trying to put heart, mind, body, and soul into the project that God has given me to do. And if you see from what you hear and read, and by whatever example I give, however puny it is, and you want to be part of it, I think God will include you. Because there's a lot of work to be done and there's a lot to be accomplished. But I wanted to go through that, uh, even though it was feast and maybe it's not the best time to do it, but it fit in with me telling you we have a calling. We have a new calling. That there's a new work to be done. And I'll have to get into that after the feast and explain and give the points on it. But I thought, since I'm saying that, maybe I'd better go back and show how I got here so that you have clearly in mind all the ups and downs and ins and outs that caused this to happen and how all these stories got started. Some of them were valid about things that happened 30, 40, 50 years ago. They, they were. I can't deny that. doesn't matter. God forgives us. Haven't we talked even in this feast about how he gives us a new day every day? And we don't have to worry about the trailer of sin we've been hauling behind us because Christ's blood detaches it. And anybody who digs around in the bottom of the stake through Christ's blood looking for your sins is in trouble with God. Because he forgives and removes sin. And if you're still looking for sin in each other or in me of something that happened a month or a year or 40, 50 years ago, your thinking is stinking. We're supposed to forget sin and move forward into righteousness. That's what we're here to do. So let's not judge each other on the past. Let's work together to make the future God's future for us and for those he sends for us to help. I think we've had a wonderful feast. I've enjoyed it. I've appreciated all the cooperation and the good fellowship and the special music and all the work and cooking and, oh, awful lot of work went on to make everybody too full and too fat. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll deal with it now. But it was sure good while it was here. So thank you so much for being you and uh, coming here to worship God. And I hope that he's pleased with, with what he's seen. So thank you. Be safe getting home.